is Star Wars Action News, hosted by Marjorie and Arnie. Helping Star Wars collectors collect better. Hello and welcome to Star Wars Action News. This is Marjorie. And this is Arnie, and welcome back to the show. It's been a little while. Collecting has been going consistently, primarily through mail order, though. Yeah, you don't really go to stores and find much. You know, there was the pandemic, and then, well, stores, they're just having trouble getting everything. Hey, if I want a Lando, I know which Walmarts to hit. (laughs) All of them. But we are happy to be back, and we've got a big show for you this episode. We're going to have an interview with the Hasbro team. We're going to have a review of the Razor Crest from HasLab. We're going to be talking about the Kenobi TV series and the Kenobi book. And we're going to start with the biggest news. Thanks to our friends at Hasbro, we've been included on today's fan celebration to reveal a figure. And that figure is... This is a Black Series 6-inch figure from the Gaming Greats series figures based off of video games the 13th battalion trooper from jedi fallen order pretty cool looking figure it's one of the skittles you know how i like to call them the skittles because they have the flavors of the rainbow this one would be lemon yeah i think it's a lemon definitely or a low orange no it's definitely a lemon that's definitely all yellow yeah this is a phase two clone trooper who over the white armor has yellow accents, most notably a big V, and then the jowls on the helmet. And he's got like a yellow soul patch. Yeah, it's like they let them mod their outfits or something, and this is what this guy, he's all in on the mustard yellow. Honestly, can never have too many designs of clones with all the games, cartoons, movies. And as with all Gaming Greats figures, this is a GameStop exclusive. It's going up for order tomorrow. March 17th at 1 p.m. Eastern at GameStop. Definitely make sure to pick that up. GameStop is one of the easier places, I think, to get exclusives. Their website's kind of wonky and janky, but they don't cancel them on you. Yeah, by and large, I haven't had too much trouble other than the Night Sister, which feels like it's been more than a year since. All the gaming greats, I always fear that troop builders like this because this is a cool looking clone and you could really give yourself a legion of them. I always fear that the troop builders, which most of the gaming greats are, are going to sell out fast to troop builders, but no, I've had very good luck. I'm not too worried so long as I get there pretty soon. Now, the price of figures has been going up lately. (laughs) Everything is going up. It's going to be $27.99. Ouch. We're paying almost $30 for an action figure now. Well, if they call it deluxe, then we're paying about 40 and it seems to have about the same accessories if it's a Boba Fett. I think there's a couple dollars here for the exclusive price hike. But yeah, the price of figures is going up considerably. And so I think that helps against the troop builders is once you're paying... Honestly, it's almost a third more than this line started off at, so you add $8 to a figure, I think people buy fewer of them as far as how many they want in a big display. Yeah, I think I'm just going to name this guy Bob, so you only need one. He's a Black Series. I only need one anyway. Oh, good. Phew. That's a relief. 
I don't keep Black Series carded. I just... Carded takes a lot of space, and I like opening my figures and playing with them. What's the point of having a whole lot of points of articulation if you're never leaving the card? Well, I want to express then about the three and three quarter inch action figures that you all have in the packaging still. Well, at least those I buy one to open and one to keep. That's true. But yeah, it's been a big topic of conversation, the price increases here, and... It's squeezing the Vintage Collection more than I think the Black Series Collection, as the Vintage Collection creeps above $15 for a 3 and 3 quarter inch figure. We've talked about it on the show before, and I remember saying, you know, I think $10 is the most people will pay. It's got a psychological (laughs) barrier. You just gotta stop at $9.99. And now I'm seeing them, you know, $16.99, $17.99, and... Let us know. Come to our Facebook page. Come to our Twitter. Let us know if the price increases have impacted the quantity of your collecting. Of course, if you only collect in stores, that's probably impacted it already. But thanks again to Hasbro for including us in the fan celebration. Now, a couple of weeks ago, I got to sit down with the Star Wars brand team. We posted it to our YouTube channel, but in case you haven't seen it yet, here is that interview territory in the end we're going to try to keep our uh answers a little more brief up front so we can get through anything everything but yeah let's dive into it jake what have you got for us oh i think you're on mute oh i i can't hear you. Uh, now you hear me there we go okay sorry too many mute buttons <laughs> all right good morning thank you once again for this opportunity um you know, Patrick, I always like to uh, take you up on your word, so I'm not going to send you some hard ones this time, and uh, I am going to send you some hard ones this time. <laughs> so we'll see how we do. Um, question number one, Hasbro's, companies, Hasbro's company initiative to remove plastic from its packaging has a, tar- uh, has a target date of the end of 2022. We've already seen this done with the new TVC Troop Builder 4-packs. How will this affect the TVC basic carded figures where the vintage style packaging is one of the key selling points? No, it's a a good question. Um, You know, Hasbro made this pledge, I think three years ago. And I will just say, I think I and a lot of people within the company, most people are are really proud and happy to work for a company that at a high level has that kind of vision and and cares about kind of the world and, and things kind of beyond our walls. So I will just say, that I, it made me excited when Hasbro said that. And obviously we're working through the details, but that kind of vision and that commitment was really exciting to see. Um, you mentioned the Troop Builder four packs. You know, we would have done that in that packaging regardless of any pledge, just because that was the way that it made sense for those uh, Troop Builder items since those weren't about the packaging. Um, we are exploring those details, what it means across the line. I, I don't have any uh, updates to share at this point, but we do look forward to sharing more info down the line. And you know, certainly, as you mentioned, that end of 2022 is coming up fast, and we will certainly share something before then. All righty. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you. All righty. Arnie. And I will just say, Arnie, I don't know if I've seen your your Zoom uh, avatar before, but it's fantastic. So <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Absolutely. Well, good morning. Um, I'm also here to give some softball questions. So, <laughs> you know, I wanted to ask about the HasLab Rancor project. It was an incredible item, you know, impressive, huge, great paint, and it missed the mark by such a narrow margin. 
And given that other Haslabs have been extended, like Unicron got a little extra time, and given that the Rancor was so close, why not give it like that extra day or two it needed to hit that goal? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, you know, as we know, Haslab is all about those dream projects and, and allowing fans to decide. And, you know, we, we, I, I backed it, you know, more than once a couple of times, I would have loved to have had a couple of Rancors in my house. And we, we definitely appreciate all the fans that supported that project and, and kind of the passion that they showed. You know, we were excited to add that Rancor Keeper mid-campaign. We saw that as kind of the extra bit needed to hit the goal. Also kind of Haslab's evolved, right? Like, you know, the Unicron, I think was the second campaign. Haslab is a pretty well-established platform at this point. People know about the time limits. Um, so after we added the Rancor Keeper mid-campaign, that was unexpected given the establishment of the platform at that point, kind of we did want to stay true to the original time period. You know, we, we knew that six, we had six plus weeks throughout the course of that campaign. It was announced at PulseCon. You know, ultimately, fans decided that this particular project in this particular configuration wasn't what they wanted to see. Um, we've learned a lot from that campaign. We're going to apply those learnings in the future, and we're really excited for our next one, whenever that may be. All right. Thank you. Absolutely. All righty. Tim, you're up next. Uh, yep. Thank you very much for having me on again. Um, okay. First question. So many collectors are wondering why the vintage collection Boba Fett Morak figure is a deluxe figure with a deluxe price tag. I understand there was a confusion with the price at the very beginning, but it's still, I think it's $20.99, which does make it deluxe. Um, and when I look at figures like the Mithril in the, in the main line, he's got loads of new accessories. He's fully newly tooled figure. Um, what makes the Boba Fett a deluxe figure yeah. with, a, no, with, a, with, with that price? Absolutely. And I would say, you know, it's not just the name. Obviously, we had a Black Series, you know, Nomad Boba Fett in his look from Typhon. That was a mainline release. Um, I, I think it's instructive to look at kind of our Black Series and vintage lines versus our other lines. You know, the things that make those targeted at the fan community are, you know, certainly the, the, the you know, the complexity, the, the articulation, the deco, the soft goods. Uh, certainly size is a piece. There are some figures that are deluxe in the Black Series line and could be a world building sets in the vintage collection line because of the size, but it is also those other things, you know, and, and deco, I think is a key piece here. Boba Fett in his armor is one of the most decoed pieces, you know, in the line. And, and I don't think we would want to simplify that. Again, that's what makes these pieces, you know, for collectors, for fans. Um, and, and deco, you know, it's, it's, it, it has a cost to it. Um, so we wouldn't have been able to do those pieces in mainline. You know, we are able to get those out at those higher SRPs. Um, and so we, we wanted to get him in the line and that was the way to do it. Okay. Cheers. Absolutely. Yep. Dominic, what have you got for us? Awesome. Well, good morning. Thank you as <laughs> always for, uh, for doing these. Uh, I want to build off of uh, what Arnie was asking and talk a little bit about the, the Rancor. Uh, obviously we were all disappointed to see it, you know, miss by just just that much yeah. uh, you mentioned that uh, you had some lessons that you learned about uh, future that you're going to apply to future star wars has lab uh, projects can you talk a little bit about what those what those lessons are and and what uh, what you're hoping uh, you, uh, you can do differently when we uh, when we do this again yeah I, I don't think i can dive into the details there but you know certainly again you know as i said this particular project this particular configuration fans decided that they didn't want to see um, and so we've been kind of diving into what those things may have be, been. We also know kind of there's a lot of things that might have worked about the project. And so as we always do, you know, it's helpful conversations like these, you know, 
we, we are, are active online and, and reading comments there. And so I think we're trying to discern kind of, you know, what specifically about the project was it that made it not work and not just assuming that, you know, anything about it could have led to that. So I think, I think that goes into the conversations. It's not just like, well, you know, this was Black Series or this was that or that. It's trying to dive into what specifically about the project uh, led to the reaction that we got. Thanks. Absolutely. All right, uh, Asanio, is that how you pronounce it? It's a, it's Ascanio, it's Ascanio, Ascanio but it's, it's good, it's good enough. Don't worry. Right. Thank you very much for hosting us. It's Thank a real pleasure. Absolutely. So uh, we wanted to ask you about this. Um, we saw some very good addings to the archives lines, nicely renewed action figures uh, with a major quality on the shapings and sculpts. And so we were curious to ask uh, and to know in future this line will have more or maybe the same importance of the already well-known Black Series that already gave us a lot of big joys? Awesome, uh, that's a good question. And I'll get Ascanio right by the end of the session for sure. Thank you, uh, no, you already got it. <laughs> there we go. We love the archive. It's definitely not kind of the Black Series, just like in vintage, the specialty waves aren't nearly as important as our mainline waves. Um, it, it's great to get those figures out for fans who didn't get them the first time. Um, and certainly it's something we put a lot of time into, but I would say, you know, definitely without a doubt, our major focus is on the, the mainline Black Series. Thank you very much. Absolutely. And Victoria, ending up round one, what have you got for us? Hey, good morning, Patrick and Emily. Really great to be here with you. Really appreciate it. Congrats on a successful Fan First Wednesday. Uh, so question number one, uh, the new Jabba's Palace uh, slash Book of Boba Fett playset looks like the kind of things collectors' dreams are absolutely made of. And um, it looks oh, phenomenal really? and yeah, it's, it's, it's awesome. Thank um, you. If, if this format is successful and I believe that it will be, um, will you consider adapting it to other fan favorite scenes such as the Mos Eisley Cantina or the Death Star Throne Room? Thanks so much. Yeah, this was a dream project to work on. Um, and by the way, I really like your live stream. Um, but yeah, this is a, this you. was, this was a fun project for us. It's one that we're definitely going to be tuned in to watch the response that fans give this project and see if this is really a platform and a format for sale of a, a mid to high priced item that works out for us. And I think um, it, we're testing the waters with this. And if we see that work out, I think this could definitely open some doors for more type of world building type items like this to come, uh, you know, potentially as pulse exclusives or to formats like this in the future and you know you mentioned Moss Eisley and the Death Star I think that's definitely uh locations that get tossed around in brainstorming of course and some of the ones that we're often thinking about uh nothing can be announced of course but this is this is all open open doors and fun new opportunities so we're excited awesome thank you Emily absolutely awesome and yeah that that project all Emily and yeah I love it as well can't wait to put my order in um Jake, back to the top. All righty. By all appearances, the cheaper priced and less articulated and less decoed retro collection figure line has been a hit. What level of success of this subline would Hasbro need to see to be motivated enough to create a non-TVC secondary line of three and three quarter figures akin to the figure lines that ran in conjunction with the vintage collections initial run about 10 years ago? 
Thank you. So yeah, we've loved to see the response to the retro collection. And this is just a dear line for us because the Kenner world is our own company history and our, our legacy of toy design. Um, so the, the team loves to create it. I would say that, um, you know, as far as jumping into an additional, you know, three and three quarter, realistically styled, simpler figure. At this time, I think that we don't have any current plans for it just because, you know, splitting currently between the Kenner styled three and three quarter figures and the highly articulated three and three quarter figures we wouldn't want to create too many splits and and you know pool our tooling across too many expressions but um you know we are always interested to hear what the community is passionate for and if you guys you know rally and tell us that there's something you're really interested in we do love to listen to it so keep letting us know what you want perfect awesome arnie back to you uh, yeah, I want to go back to the Jabba's Palace diorama and Emily, great job on that. I think that's honestly the most exciting play set of the past 30 years. Yeah, thank so, you. Uh, but it's been announced in the United States as a Pulse exclusive, but it would be available to retailers overseas. And we've seen some Pulse exclusives. I remember specifically the Marvel retro three and three quarter inch figure two packs were Pulse exclusives. They did end up at regular retail in the U.S. What are the chances that eventually down the line, Jabba's Palace might also end up being available at retail? I think I can safely say 0%. Um, so I, I can't comment on other brands. I, I think there might have been kind of different packaging executions between Pulse and uh, other retailers. This, this is a Pulse exclusive in the U.S. and Canada and U.K. That's going to be the only way to get it outside those territories. And we mentioned yesterday, kind of in Europe, it will be a Pulse exclusive later outside Europe and North America. I uh, will, we, again, because we want to make sure that this amazing item from Emily gets to fans worldwide. So outside those Pulse territories, uh, it will be available through other retail partners, but in, in the US, Canada and Europe, only through Pulse. All right. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you. All righty, Tim, back to you. Thanks. Okay. So um, many collectors were shocked to see the shipping date of the uh, Black Series Dark Trooper. Um, I think it's due in March or even May 23. So can you tell us why the time between ordering and shipping seems to be increasing with every pre-order? I, I would imagine there's still things to come at the end of this year which haven't been announced, haven't been put up for pre-order. Why, why are you releasing things that are so far ahead rather than things that maybe coming out in October, for example. Yeah, no, I, I can't kind of speak to it partly just because it's it's complex, but just kind of when we're releasing what. Um, I, I think for these items, it's two things. One, obviously we know the world has been a, a crazy place the past couple of years. There are very real global logistical issues that you know we're working through along with you know every company out there. Uh, you know, we're working to provide as much and as accurate of information as possible. Uh, we, we, we know that, it's hard to know kind of when those items will come given everything going on and how the world will look different. We wanted to make sure that we weren't kind of over-promising and giving an overly optimistic uh, point of view and then disappointing down the line. Um, I, I do also know I've read a lot from the community that they want more transparency and they want to know what is coming. I think we've moved in that direction with pipeline reveals and certainly, you know, I think giving visibility to product as soon as we have it and as soon as we're able, even if it's coming down the line, so we're not kind of holding that back, but we're sharing what we have to share with the community. Yeah, okay. Because obviously, yeah, I mean, I think doesn't a Black Series wave come up for pre-order today and 
people are finding it in in stores and stuff it's just i don't know everything just seems a bit weird yeah. about when things are coming and things like that I just yeah i just wanted to sort of ask yeah no it's the world has thrown us a lot of curveballs the mm. past few years that's that, i don't know what no one would think that that's the way we would want it to happen obviously we want things to be as smooth as possible and so we're dealing with those curveballs where we can okay thanks absolutely yep dominic uh, so obviously, obviously, this is the most uh, one of the most exciting times to be a Star Wars fan. We just had Book of Boba wrap up. We're all looking ahead at Kenobi uh, coming up in uh, just a couple of months now. Uh, but one of the things we constantly hear from from fans is that um, they would like to see uh, figures and 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 merchandise from the shows that are on 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 the shelves around the same time that the shows are on. Now, obviously, you guys are at the mercy of Lucasfilm and Disney and when you can get uh, designs ready to go for release but can you talk to us a little bit about uh, maybe take us behind the scenes on the timeline of uh when you guys start to see things uh that are going to be part of new media and how that affects your design process and how that might even be different from uh doing stuff from the classic films sure um so as far as when we get started that can vary from content to content it is based on when the assets come to us from lucasfilm i will say that when we get a batch of assets from lucasfilm it's like christmas and our whole team will sort of gather around and just like parse through it and discuss and and that's a really fun day when we get to dig through it all um but yeah definitely um also when we get a batch of assets we can't really rush at everything at once and make every toy as soon as we as soon as we see every character in the show because then we wouldn't have you know paced out news for the year so we will take that you know batch of assets and say okay we want to approach these first we're going to get to these afterward and pace it out so that there is a, a full year of toy news for you guys and and without um you know as much pauses in between so pacing that out becomes part of our process i would say that when it comes to original trilogy content that's a more delicate game of balance um and part of that is because when we look at the original trilogy for me at least we're balancing you know a hero character like luke obviously he's got incredible appeal but also how many times have we done him and then when it comes to a background character you know that can be something that can fill in the gap in a collector's world um but they may not be known as well so those are really interesting balancing games to play when we look at original trilogy um and yeah we try to to bring a little bit of it all in and that's the most interesting dance. All righty. Ascanio, back to you. So we were talking about the distribution, and I have a question about it. At the moment, we are surely talking about the United States, Canada, United Kingdom, uh, but not about specifically Europe and maybe Italy. So we would like to know if there are some hopes about finding better and more effective ways for collectors to reach the products, or if there will still be the need to aim for important, um, I mean, important. pieces, yeah. therefore, making the whole process more expensive and difficult. So we would like to know if there will be an improvement on this point of view. Yeah, I, I would say that's definitely not our goal. You know, I've shared in the past before the pandemic, you know, we we went out to Europe every year and had a, a fan summit with all of our regions. And the, the whole point was improving things like this. Distribution is always at the top of the list. So, you know, we were able to make some improvements kind of coming out of those conversations, uh, have more kind of frequent conversations about getting the right product to the right places. Um, you know, we've continued to have those conversations virtually since the pandemic started. But yeah, I, I think that hope is always there, especially within Star Wars. But it's it's certainly never our goal to just say, uh, this is the way it is. And, and that's kind of the best it's going to be. You know, again, our goal is to make sure that these products get to the fans that want them. That's good for the fans. It's good for Hasbro. And so we're continually working on ways to make that possible. Absolutely. Victoria, 
end of round two. All right, so fans are excited to see Hasbro's dedication to The Mandalorian and The Book of Boba Fett as we continue to see with yesterday's reveals. Uh, with further Disney Plus content on the horizon, it seems that it may be hard to catch collectors up on some of the ones that are still trying to get uh, Kieran or Kessel out at Baze Malvis, um, the main cast from The Rise of Skywalker, most of them, for example. Uh, is there a plan to address some of these critical figures as time goes on? Thank you. I would say that um, never say never for Star Wars. It's definitely, you know, these are definitely things that we want to eventually come back around to. And there's always going to be a deep well of content that we can revisit because really this content has had lasting power. You know, four decades of, of you know, characters that we can return to and they're still strong today. Um, I would say too that, um, you know, as far as coming back to very specific characters, can't make any promises today, but they're not forgotten and there's certainly potential in the future. I would say that you have a quite a champion for Baze Malbus on the team with Patrick over here and one that we keep pinging in our brainstorms. Um, so hopes for the future for many of them. Cool, thank you. Absolutely. All right, uh, kicking off round three and I'll just say we are gonna have to speed round it a little bit so that we make sure to get to all your questions. So Jake, kick us off. All right. Yesterday, we saw some amazing new reveals with the Boba Fett throne room playset, a new line of archive figures, and some great additions to the main figure lines. What can Hasbro say to the many collectors and fans out there who are excited about all these products, but are a little hesitant to pre-order or for, are fatigued by the amount of Hasbro pre-orders currently outstanding? Um, for example, after today, I have almost $1,600 in pre-orders just for TVC alone, and I typically only buy one of each. And today, and I forgot about the uh, Black Series line that Tim mentioned earlier with Omega, uh, we have probably today about $475 more of pre-orders going live today. So how do we, how does Hasbro view that? Yeah, no, I think there's, there's a few different answers here and I'll try to keep it quick, but you know, one is that just global logistical situation we talk about. And so hopefully as the world eventually returns to normal, that'll kind of solve itself out. I think one piece is kind of that desire to give that greater transparency. And I know we've heard when we don't do pre-orders on items, you know, the community likes to be able to kind of lock in their purchases. So I, I think that large number is in part because of, you know, the increase in product that we've uh, experienced over the past few years, which again, I think is something we've heard from fans. Uh, so I think in terms of the, the fatigue, I think the key thing here is just as the world eventually hopefully returns to normal, we should see those timelines tighten up and hopefully get that product out closer to when we reveal it. Do, do we think there's a time, in, is this Hasbro's new model that we think we've permanently adopted with the pre-order or do you think there'll be times when figures are going to be, you know, easily or readily found on toy runs? So I think certainly, you know, and we moved to pre-orders, and I'll keep this quick, uh, we moved to pre-orders even before the pandemic, again, in response to thoughts from the community. But, you know, with most of these items in, in brick and mortar, they, they should be available both in pre-order and then also kind of when they go on shelf. All righty. Thank you. Yep. Arnie, back to you. Jake, very brave keeping the prices on your pre-order spreadsheet. I like to ostrich and not really know how much is going to be coming out. It was painful. That That's just the TVC. I, I didn't do the whole total. <laughs> um, and yeah, Patrick, you mentioned keeping a lot of fresh figures out there, and it is good to see a lot of releases coming out. But out of yesterday's seven reveals, 
Five of them were repaints or reissued figures in the archive line. And it seems lately the amount of repaints or minor retools really outnumber the number of newly sculpted or major retooled figures, especially when you start taking exclusives into account, which are almost entirely some sort of repaint or some sort of re-release. So, I mean, the recent Dark Trooper, the announcement of Isla Sakura, certainly a breath of fresh air in this regard. But looking forward, what is your team doing to inject new freshness into the line? And can we hope for a greater ratio of new sculpts or major retools in the future? Absolutely. Yeah. No, I, I think, again, we touched on this before, uh, you know, and someone asked if the, the archive would, you know, rival Black Series. And so I think there's certainly passion there for archive and, and the reissues as a way to get those figures to fans who didn't get them the first time around. And, and I will just say, we've said this before, they are a bonus to the line. They, they don't take away anything from the new figures. So if they didn't exist, they wouldn't be replaced by newly tooled figures. It's just, they wouldn't exist basically. Um, you know, we know that repaints and retools and kit bashes, you know, can be a great way to get new figures to, into the line. And again, they don't sub out for newly tooled figures. You mentioned the Dark Trooper and Isla Sakura. We're also excited about Maul and Saw. Uh, and I just will say, I think we had this question on a previous one. You know, this live stream, you know, isn't everything for the next few months. We have, you know, more reveals coming in the next few weeks, few months. And so I think, you know, as we look at the line today versus where it was a few years ago, I think there's more newness kind of across newly tooled figures and also just the breadth of characters. We're going to continue delivering those newly tooled figures while also those repaints and kit bashes that build out the line without taking away from the newly tooled figures. Okay, thanks. Absolutely. Tim, back to you. Oh uh, yeah, slightly more positive uh, question for me this time. Firstly, okay. Emily, just thank you so much for that uh, Jabba's playset. That's, when I look back at May 2020 and where the vintage collection was back then, I never thought that it would could get this good. So thank you so much for that. Oh, thank you. Re regarding that set, the um, it was announced that the Bib Fortuna was a deluxe carded figure. Does that mean that the deluxe is going to be the size of like the Maldo Crease uh, Mandalorian, or is it going to be a standard size card and the deluxe factor is that it's an all newly tooled figure and it's soft goods and, and what have you? Yeah, thank you for reaching out for uh, detail on this. I will say that um, as far as the packaging, just to be fully transparent, this is something our team is still evaluating. The plan is for this character to be blister carded. I think our team needs to work through how you know, big that blister is. And for me, my push would be, I would hope that it can be standard because I know that fans want to put the case around that carded yeah. figure and definitely want to bring in that fan insight. I know that when we released the Maldo crease, some, some fans were, you know, like, what am I going to put this in and, and struggled to find that casing op you know, option for that size blister. So that, that also did lead to why we created the alternate look for the deluxe items to go forward with in the future. And that's been kind right. of an evolving process for us as we build this new format of deluxe for vintage collection. But again, back to Bib Fortuna, um, still evaluating. We're not sure if we can keep it standard. We need to work a little bit with our packaging team in the final model. Okay, all right, thank you. Cool. Dominic. I think I'm just going to join in on everybody uh, saying uh, cool <laughs> things about the uh, Palace playset because that thing is awesome. Uh, it's it's really cool. And, and uh, one of the one of the parts of the live stream I really enjoyed was when you guys were talking about uh, the just insane number of accessories that come with it. Uh, can you can you talk us through uh, some of your favorites uh, that uh, that you included in in that set? 
Certainly. This is such a fun question. So um, we just poured attention into the detail of the accessories of this set. We actually took all of the incredible reference that we received from Lucasfilm and we just zoomed and zoomed and zoomed and, part and like put all of that in a grid and said, okay, which accessories are we going to make? And I talked a little bit on the live stream about, you know, some of my big favorites are, of course, the droid head on the platter. Again, it's just such a warning right out there to all droids coming up in this palace. Um, I love, again, the, the coin pouch piece because I can just see your figures like trading it back and forth, trading hands, making deals you know getting bounties um so some of that brings some really fun figure play um as well you know a piece that i didn't talk about so much it's kind of cool just as far as the detail of it is like to the right of the throne there's this little uh platter that has all this fruit in it and i was like is this space dates like what are these little fruits in this little like stand um some of those little pieces are just um so fun and detailed and, and little. And I think as well, if you checked out our, and I'll just end with, if you checked out our online photography of the set with the interchangeable meats that you can put on the grill spit, you may catch a little Mandalorian Easter egg. So um, those were all really fun bits and I just hope you guys dig in and discover it all. Cool. Thank you. Ascanio. So yeah, we're talking about Java's palace and all these nice details. Um, I wanted to ask specifically, um, we will see a further expansion of the mentioned room and maybe perhaps an enlargement of the area uh, dedicated to the Rancor, the Rancor's Pit. We will see something more about it. Yeah, so it's interesting. We, we didn't actually spend a ton of time down in the Rancor Pit room. We just had kind of one scene this season. But I think what's going to be impactful for us is to continue to watch and see what Lucasfilm does with these locations and where they put the most action and where they bring the most figures together is going to be what appeals to me for playset building. Um, but I would say that probably there's a lot of opportunity for Tatooine in general. You've seen us return to this palace from our first release of the Jabba's Palace set, um, now into this you know new throne room set. And I think that honestly, there's a lot of opportunity in Tatooine to think about for the future. Thanks. Victoria. So uh, a lot of Black Series figures for clone troopers lately have been missing the black stripe above the helmet, um, giving a more of an animated look. The consensus seems to be that fans prefer the more realistic movie interpretation. Um, is there a reason that that has been omitted on recent clone figures and can that eventually make its way to TVC? Um, thanks so much. So I had a chat with Eric about this one as the, the master of all, you know, Black Series planning. And um, I would say that what we chatted about is that really he felt like the no stripe, you know, referred to the animated version of a clone and that there's just so much more frequency of those types of animated clones on screen versus the um, ones that came from the movie. So for him, he felt that was potentially the most um, mo most widely used version of a clone. But also, you know, that just added to the tooling library of the Black Series, and they still have the previous version to work with. Um, and then as far as bringing that into the vintage collection, clones are definitely, you know, one of the peak toys that we love to release all of the incredible variety of. And um, I think you'll see potential for, for clones in the future and updates where we can. Great, thank you. Awesome. All right, I think we have eight minutes left for two rounds, so we are going to have to top line it, and that's on Emily and I. So, Jake, round four. All right. Well, I think uh, that's good for me because most of my uh, 
parts of my last two questions have kind of been addressed by the crew here. Um, so I will uh, end with the uh, last question on my list um, here. And it's again, Emily, fantastic job on the Boba Fett's uh, palace. Now, this is an amazing set. It comes with a little higher price tag because of all the pieces to it. Was this at one point des um, designed or uh, thought to be the next uh, vintage collection HasLab? And if not, why? Yeah, no, it, you know, it was always intended to be a pure Pulse exclusive. Uh, and I think it's kind of due to the lower price point uh, and accordingly the, the lower resources needed. And I will just say, I think we were excited to explore this area like between you know the the brick and mortar items and then kind of the the dream half lab items, we thought that there was an opportunity for this other way, and you know hopefully that'll be the case. Awesome, hopefully cool. more in the future. Yep, Arnie. Yeah, the Jabba's Palace, as great as it is, I do know I saw some sticker shock among the collector community. And, you know, just across the board, the cost of figures has increased, not just in the Star Wars line, but in every line. And lately, I've heard more and more people saying they're starting to feel a little priced out of being a Star Wars collector. So I was curious what your response is to those fans and what your team is doing to keep Star Wars a toy collecting a hobby everyone can afford. Yeah, I'll, I'll try to keep this quick. It's a tough question, but it's a good question. You know, like, like most other companies, we've seen those significant increases in material and freight costs. So we've had to take those actions to offset those costs um, in those price increases. You know, we're doing everything we can to continue delivering those quality products for that affordable price. And we haven't been willing to compromise on the quality of the products. We think that's the most important thing. We're still proud of that. And we're going to continue doing that. And, and yeah, I hope for the best. Thanks. Great. Tim. Hey, so uh, what was behind the decision to release the Fiverr First clone on a different card back when all other reissues um, haven't had that same treatment? Was it due to the fact that it was updated quite significantly or was it the fact that it wasn't part of the specialty waves? Yeah, thanks for asking this one. I think this actually came from us just seeing these clones pop up a lot more in the Clone Wars animation. So what we thought about was, you know, the previous release was Revenge of the Sith. And maybe this is an opportunity to celebrate that we're getting a really relevant and classic troop builder back out there. But it's been in multiple contents in a way that we can celebrate. Okay, awesome. Dominic. Uh Going to the uh, Black Series archive line, you guys made a couple of cool announcements there with Lando and 3PO and Dengar and old Sheaf Palpatine coming back uh, as he as he so often does. Um, can you talk a little bit about uh, what goes into selecting figures for the Black Series uh, archive line? How do you weigh things like wanting to update the figure, uh, the fan desire for that character to come back and, and the time since it was uh, first on the shelf? Yeah, I think it's a mix of all those things. It's an art rather than a science. I think the final piece is, again, kind of when this line was launched, it was launched with the goal of getting kind of these main characters out there that hadn't been there. Uh, sorry, that fans who are newer to the hobby hadn't gotten. So I think kind of prominence for the character and, and appeal to a newer fan uh, is the final piece of the puzzle. But yeah, everything you mentioned, you know, key updates to the figure, um, you know, the, the existing fan desire on the time are all certainly important components. Cool. Thank you. Absolutely. Ascanio. Oh, I think you're on mute, Ascanio. Thank you for reminding me of that. So we wanted to know something more about the process, the creative process, how it starts, how you choose, for example, a play set 
and uh, mostly and specifically, uh, which are the timings required in order to realizing one. Thank you so much. Um, this is a fun process and uh, I will share that I probably pitched actually four different playset locations before we landed on this final. And I'm always like, Patrick, Patrick, what about this? So, <laughs> um, but one of the things that I think about as I pick those locations is really just what were the scenes where the most impactful stories happened? Are these the moments in the areas where you just were riveted and, and you know at the edge of your seat and the action was happening, but also, was it a scene where more than two characters were interacting? Was there a group? Because for me, you can see I've got a dense shelf and I want a playset where I can bring lots of figures together versus just like a scene for one. Um, so displayability, how many can I fit in the set? Also shelf fit. Actually, you'll find that the new playset is, I designed it with the depth to fit nicely on a shelf. Um, so all of that type of display and collection and storytelling pulls into where I pick a playset location. Thanks. Absolutely. All right, Victoria. The Lucasfilm 50th uh, TVC's uh, Tuscan Raider uh, across the board seemed to have a widespread issue of their wrists being a little too tight and breaking off when manipulated. Uh, what was the reasoning for that and has the resolution to that been found? Thank you for raising this. This is actually a quality concern that I hadn't heard about with our Tuscan. I would like to maybe use this question as an opportunity to say that um, we would really encourage fans, if you ever have a quality issue, we super regret it. And please reach out to Hasbro's quality care and, and consumer care. Um, because actually, I, there is a little bit of a trend where fans tend to talk a lot on the forums and maybe not reach out to the uh, you know official care team. And they're not hearing as much as they used to for those concerns. And we definitely, they really do track it and they'll build reports of the numbers of concerns on a, a quality topic. So definitely reach out and let us know. Sounds good. Thanks. Absolutely. All right. We're going to get this last round in. Jake. Oh, I'm caught or unaware. We can come back All to right. you. We can come back to you. No, no, no. We're good. Um, so you've kind of touched on this a little bit, but maybe you can add uh, maybe another piece of detail. It's uh, essentially... Star Wars toys seem to come out a little later than other brands that Hasbro has. Transformers, um, Power Rangers, Marvel properties all have their products in store, usually around the time that their media that they're based on is uh, announced. For example, Marvel usually actually gets it out two to three months earlier, and it's in-store shelves. People are aware of it. Star Wars brands, uh, toys seem to come out 12 to 18 months following the debut of new media. Now, I know you can't speak on behalf of other brand teams, but you are working at Hasbro. And so you probably have some insight about how Dr. Strange figures could be on the shelf right now before the movie comes in a few months, but book of Boba Fett has 12 to 18 months. Yeah. I think we certainly have some figures that are out kind of with new media. I think we had the artillery trooper in black series uh, last year, I think, or this year, uh, Bo-Katan, I think we revealed uh, kind of during the show. So so there are certainly exceptions. You know, we've said in the past that we see some things the same times you guys do. And honestly, you know, I wouldn't have it any other way given the impact that we see. You know, we saw Grogu, the child in the Mandalorian the same time everyone else did. And just the, the, just the, the feeling of that and just seeing the impact on the world was amazing. And so I think, you know, we, we trust Lucasfilm, we trust John Favreau uh, in terms of when we're gonna get assets for the Mandalorian and other properties. And then we race as quite quickly as possible to get those out. All right. Cool. Arnie. Real quick one. With the re-release of the 501st Trooper on the new card back, is he getting a new TVC number? 
That's a good one that I don't know off the top of my head okay. that I'll have to follow up with my packaging team about. Um, I'm sorry yeah. that I can't answer that one at this time. Okay, thanks. I I believe so, uh, given the new Is card it? back. I believe so. That feels yeah. right. Yeah, but we can certainly confirm. Thanks. Um, Tim. Okay, uh, does the creation of Hasbro Pulse in Europe and the subsequent access to that direct consumer market uh, actively affect the opportunity for more creatures, play sets, um, vehicles that you can create in the future? Because from what we understand it, maybe retailers are maybe a bit nervous about stocking those items. Yeah, I mean, I think we mentioned this earlier or in a previous interview, but, you know, we will still absolutely continue to see play sets and vehicles in retail stores like the Antoc Merrick X-Wing, like the Navarro Cantina playset. We are certainly excited about uh, the ability to expand Pulse to fans you know, around the world someday, hopefully, uh, but starting with the announcement about Germany. Um, and yeah, certainly we're excited then to bring all those great items to Star Wars and fans through whatever channel works best. You know, it certainly helps uh, open up new possibilities as we've seen with this item, as we saw several years ago with the launch of HasLab. Uh, so it, it's a better world today than it was then in terms of this specific aspect. Okay, cheers. Absolutely. Dominic. So uh, looking ahead at uh, at the rest of this year, uh, it's looking like 2022 is going to be the year that we can finally get the, the convention circuit back on track after having uh, a year or two off in there, uh, starting with Celebration coming up in May. I, I, I'm just sort of wondering, are you guys planning on getting back out there for more conventions and how you're going to balance that with uh, the success you've seen with the live streams? Are the live streams going to go away? Are we just going to kind of go back to how yeah. things were? Are we going to stick with the live streams? Is there a balance in there? Well, uh, yeah. What are you guys looking ahead at for 2022? And maybe uh, are we going to see you at the celebration <laughs> in May? Yeah, I can't comment on any specific plans, but uh, everyone on the team is so excited to get back to conventions when it's safe to do so, whenever that time might be. We, we love kind of interacting and chatting with folks and we know that that's a valued way to uh, get feedback to us. Either way, we definitely plan to continue live streams. We've loved that platform to reach a broader audience. And so those will definitely continue. Cool. Thank you for everything this morning. Absolutely. Thank you. Uh, Scanio. Last but not least, are we going to see more vehicles, vehicles, maybe massive ones too? And if yes, could you give us maybe just little anticipations or maybe some clues. I will give you my personal suggestions. I would love to see Naga Sadao's Meditation Sphere, for example, or a Darifan class battleship, something coming from, you know, the golden age of the Sith, expanded universe, good old times. <laughs> love it. So vehicles is something that they're constantly coming up in our team's brainstorms and there definitely were some fun new vehicles revealed in the show that we were definitely excited by. We don't have any announcements that we can make currently, um, but we're looking for ways that are the best to bring those to market and potential future opportunities for vehicles because it is a huge part of Star Wars. Absolutely. Victoria, bring us home. I think we'll make right. it. I'm going to make a quick change because my last question kind of got answered already. Hope that's okay. Um, for the sale barge, Hasbro did a, an exchange program for the yak faces that arrived with the cards kind of damaged. Is there going to be something similar for the uh, Razor Crest? Some of them on social media seem to be damaged. I might include it. The Grogu card had a pretty bad crease in it. Uh, we, we can look into that. I, this is the first time I'm hearing about it, but um, we'll, it's certainly great feedback and we'll look into it. Awesome. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you guys. Again, I know we had to move fast at the end, but wanted to get through all the rounds. I'll just say sincere thank you. We love doing this. Thank you guys for taking the time. I know it's time out of your day and we look forward to doing it again sometime soon.
Thank you for your passion. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you. Have a good one. Bye-bye. Thank you a lot. Thank you. Thanks again to the Hasbro team. So I asked about the Rancor and how I think one day, one day, and that Rancor would have been funded if they could have just given it that reprieve. I mean, they gave Unicron a reprieve. Yeah, it seems like it was just so close and it just didn't get there. And I know there was a big online movement to have people cancel their orders. And that's a shame because it really would have been cool to have. Yeah, when the stretch goal that was announced was a cardboard backdrop, that did get a movement to cancel orders. But once they announced some of the other bonuses, especially when they announced that they were going to throw in at the base tier the Malakili Rancor Keeper figure, that undid all of the cancellations and more. I mean... I get it, the cardboard backdrop, I don't know if it's cancel-worthy. I suppose it depends on how you look at crowdfunding. For me, I'm paying X, and I hope to get the base tier. If I get stretch goals, those are bonuses, and they make my money spent a better value, but I can't count on stretch goals. I never think, oh, I'm getting these stretch goals, and so... That's why I don't understand people canceling their order with a lackluster stretch goal. Yeah, I mean, you're in it for the product. Whatever else you get, it's great that you get it. I don't know that I would actually cancel something because of a stretch goal or an accessory or something like that. But, you know, everybody has their own way of collecting. And maybe some people just felt they needed to have something more than cardboard to tip them over the edge. Well, I did see the whole no oola, no moolah crowd. And, (laughs) I mean, I don't know internal conversations, but I think everybody can sense which way the wind is blowing from Lucasfilm. Yeah, I don't think we're going to get an Ula. Ever again. We're lucky to have the figures that were made in the days, but let's remember, it got leaked. The edict came down. No more Jabba's prisoner Princess Leia merchandise. You can say Slave Leia, Arnie. It's okay. You can say Slave Leia. Should I say Hut Slayer Leia? No. You know, the problem with Hut Slayer Leia is if you accidentally misspeak that, it's a real big insult. Yes, it is. <laughs> I don't think she's slave Leia as an antebellum slave, which I think is where a lot of people objected to the name, and I get it. I think she's more of a BDSM slave. <laughs> I don't think that's better. I don't think that's improved. Which one is Boba Fett's ship that's no longer called Slave One? Who knows? So if they're not going to give us Princess Leia in an iconic outfit ever again, then Ula is a no-go. I think we've lived through the heyday of every background character being deemed worthy, and now from a sales standpoint. I just think having a giant Rancor would have been really awesome and a lot more shelf-friendly than even the Black Series TIE Fighter they did. I'm glad that they're not trying to do like a Black Series X-Wing, because you'd almost need an X-Wing of the house to put a couple of TIE Fighters behind it on. No one needs to add on to their house just for a Black Series ship. Well, speaking of Haslabs, a couple weeks ago we did get our Razor Crest. Unfortunately, I don't feel comfortable opening mine yet, because... We did move less than a year ago. I'm still sorting out exactly where everything's going to be displayed. I don't want to risk losing any accessories or anything. So 
I'm going to live vicariously through Andrew, who is here to give us a glorious tour of his Razor Crest and let us know what he thinks with a hands-on review. Hey, everybody. Andrew here, and today, believe it or not, I'm not going to talk about Hot Toys. Nope. Today, I'm talking about the HasLab Razor Crest. This is the second Star Wars HasLab project. The crowdfunding campaign began September 25th, 2020, you know, about 75 years ago, and ended six and a half weeks later on November 9th of that same year. The initial project goal of 6,000 backers included the ship itself and an exclusive three and three-quarter scale figure of the Mandalorian himself, Din Djarin. The first two stretch goals for the escape pod and Grogu with vac-metalized hover pram were quickly reached. Subsequent stretch goals were also met by the time the campaign ended and included four carbonite blocks, a display stand, and exclusive off-world Jawa Elder figure. When Hasbro first announced this project, I was initially not sure about the choice. Sure, The Mandalorian was a wide-reaching and very popular show on Disney+, but HasLab was supposed to be dream projects that Hasbro wouldn't be able to produce by regular means. Was the Razorcrest really a dream project? It just seemed too new to be something that would fall under that category. But after thinking on it a while, it kind of made sense when you thought about how they probably would never be able to make a vintage collection Razorcrest that would sell at retail, at least not with the level of detail that the team obviously wanted to put into it. One of the nice things about this ship in comparison to the first HasLab is that it doesn't have quite the space commitment that you had to have for the sail barge. But it's still going to require a large, deep shelf to display. The box is large, and if you're watching the video podcast, you'll see an awkward attempt to get it out of its shipper box. As we've come to expect with the Vintage Collection line, there is some great artwork on the packaging reminiscent of the good old days of collecting. And once it's fully assembled, the ship itself is 30 inches long, 10 and a half inches tall, and 20 inches wide when displayed on the landing gear. And if you decide to display it in flight on the display stand, you'll be adding about 4 inches to its height. The exterior of the ship boasts really nice paint applications, with a dark wash applied to add some weathering effects. Now this wash really looks good in the crevices, but almost looks just like it was smeared on when looking closely at some of the smooth surfaces. My favorite paint details are around the engines. They applied gradient coloring that goes from copper to dark orange to this metallic blue near the ends of the engine, which really look like metal that's been superheated time and time again. It's really sharp. And speaking of the engines, the inside of them sports a really nice translucent orange piece to mimic their heat. Now, perhaps my favorite thing about this ship is something that I really didn't expect to love so much. And that is all of the pop-off panels that they put on the outside of this thing. There are 16 pieces that pop off of this thing, including the canopy. And what I love about that isn't just the detailed innards that they reveal, but the fun in the discovery of it all. My advice, ignore pages 4 through 6 of the user manual and just search the outside of the ship for little fingernail grooves and enjoy the sense of discovery. But I guess if you're watching the video podcast, that ship's probably already sailed. The only disappointment is that, while some of the panels have some decent paint apps on the underside of them, some of the others just have this solid color, and, and even the underside of the panel that reveals the escape pod, it's got like these four little pieces that aren't even painted at all. But really, the fun I had to pull all of those out outweighs that lack of detail. 
And likewise, some of the plastic that is revealed under these panels has some great sculpting, but just looks like boring blue plastic without so much as a wash to make it look dirty. You know, I, I think about what my car looks like under the hood. None of it is spotless, but some of these ship parts look like Mando just wiped it down with some Beskar armor all. The landing skids are equally frustrating from a paint perspective. They've got one panel on them that is painted to mimic the exterior of the ship, but the skids themselves are just this boring, unpainted gray plastic. It would have been nice to see some dirt on the skids, since those are bound to get dirty landing on the sands of Tatooine or the swampy forests of Sorgan. One of the panels in the back of the ship reveals a neat little pull-out blaster cannon that swivels nicely. The front blasters also swivel up and down, and need to be in order to reveal two of the removable panels. I should also mention that all of the pieces that need to be assembled, uh, the front blaster cannons, the two engines, the landing skids, and the two clear pieces on the top of the display stand, those can all be removed if you ever need to box the ship back up again, which is always a welcome feature on these larger pieces. The escape pod can be found under the top panel and easily fits one standard three and three quarter inch figure. Again, there is some nice sculpting inside the pod, but while the exterior has some variation in colors and, and a nice wash, the interior is just a solid silver. It rests inside the top panel, which is made up of two sections, one thin piece that pops off to reveal the pod, and a larger, thicker piece that can be removed to open up a top-down view of the ship's cargo hold. This piece is the only piece that is removed by pushing a release button, which has a really nice feel to it. The underside of this larger panel also includes the clips that hold the included carbonite blocks, and slide up and down this groove so you can rack them up just like you see in the show. And the underside of this large panel is another area that is just a solid blue unpainted plastic. Your action figures can enter the cargo hold through a small side ramp that extends down to the ground, or a rear loading ramp. Both of them have these little sliding poles that, while not exactly simulating hydraulics, give a smooth sense of motion that is satisfying when raising or lowering the ramps. You can also access the cargo hold through a large side panel that pops off. This panel has really nice detail in both sculpt and paint, and boasts several hooks where Mando can hang several of the sculpted bags that are included with the ship. The opposite wall also has some hooks on it, but most of those are used to hold a cargo net that can be stuffed with any number of items. There's also a removable ladder that I guess the Mandalorian can use to climb up to the roof once the top panel is removed, but it really doesn't make any sense otherwise. Also on the back wall is a carbonite freezing closet where you can easily fit one of the carbonite blocks. Next to that is the weapons locker, which leads me to my only serious complaint about the ship. I really thought that this would be one of my favorite features given all the weapons that are included, and I love putting stuff away neatly in its place. But this? <laughs> this was a chore. It's located across from the side ramp, but it's really, really, really hard to get your fingers into. And when I was trying to stick tiny blasters onto a tiny peg while reaching my adult-sized hand through a door that's just barely big enough for that same adult-sized hand to fit, let's just say that it left me scarred. No, seriously, I had scrapes on the back of my hand by the time I was done. Oh, and did I mention that it didn't come with all of the blasters? Yeah, uh, I've triple-checked, and one of the little blasters wasn't included in the baggie that they all came in. 
Now I've reached out to Hasbro. Hopefully they'll be able to make it right, but just wanted to let you know. We'll see what happens. Similarly to the awkwardly placed weapons closet, there are these two little cupboards in the front of the cargo hold that can be used for storage and, you know, Grogu's little sleeping quarters. They are equally hard to get to. You know, it really is too bad that they couldn't have found a way to make the top panel extend all the way up to the canopy of the cockpit so you could have a way to reach these storage areas from above. Next to them is the <clears throat> space toilet, the refresher, if you will, complete with vac tube, which <clears throat> sucks. Mando's a little cramped back there, but that's really all I need to say about that. The cockpit seats three and is nicely painted. The seats in particular caught my eye. They put this texture on the pads, which really makes it look kind of like leather when the light reflects off of the different crevices. You can put a Grogu figure in the included basket, which can either be set on one of the chairs or it sets nicely between the two rear chairs. The included Mandalorian figure sits nicely in the seat and, with some finagling, can hold each of the control sticks nicely. Which leads me to the included figures. Now let's start with the carbonite blocks, since they're the simplest. I can remember as a kid always wanting that Han and carbonite figure. And these fit that mold. Uh, sorry, sorry for the pun. They are nicely sculpted on the fronts and the sides and have little grooves that help them stay in their little holding hooks. But the backs have no sculpting at all, and they honestly feel really cheap, you know, given that they're just, you know, hollow blocks of single-colored plastic. It would have been nice if they'd painted some of the controls on the sides, but these were bonus add-ons, so I guess I shouldn't complain, right? Grogu, subtitled The Razor Crest, is just as adorable as you'd expect. He's really tiny. He's got what I believe to be a new head sculpt, with ears raised and his mouth is slightly opened. I suppose that's so he can, you know, eat the enclosed cookie, which looks like a teeny tiny Oreo. But the real pack-in that makes this shine, that pun was intended, is the vac-metalized pram. That thing really reflects everything, and it just looks amazing. The other carded figure, the off-world Jawa Elder from Arvala 7, is your standard Jawa with soft goods cloak. It's got a sculpted hood and a neat little necklace that has some cool details painted on it. He, or she, comes with three blaster rifles and a large knife that can be used to recreate the scene where the mudhorn egg is sliced open. Speaking of which, you get two eggs included, one whole and one with the top loft off with this gross yellow ooze running down the side of it. Ugh. Now both of these come on an unpunched card back that has a new numbering scheme. Now, if you'll remember, the yak face that came with the sail barge was numbered VC000, so as not to throw off the numbers for those collectors who don't get the sail barge. Grogu and Offworld Jawa Elder have numbers HAS001 and HAS002, respectively, which is nice so those who want a full collection of the mainline don't need to worry about getting these if they don't want to. Now, I'm leaving both of these in their packaging, so I can't really give you a fully detailed review of their articulation. Uh, but if I really wanted to populate the scene with these figures, I have plenty of other options. So for now, I'm opting to just leave these mint on card. But the last figure that comes with the Razor Crest didn't come on a card, which I'm grateful for since it's the only Mandalorian that will fit in the cockpit thanks to its soft goods cape. The sculpt is great, and the paint apps are solid. He comes with his Ambin Phase Pulse Rifle and a blaster pistol, which fits nicely in his holder. 
He also comes with a removable jetpack, which really makes his cloak look silly. So if he's not in the cockpit, I'm going to be using a different figure if I want him to have his jetpack on. My only really complaint about this figure is that his joints are ratcheted, which makes it really difficult to pose him with his blaster rifle, or really any position that isn't standing straight up or sitting down. But since this figure will most likely always be posed in my ship's cockpit, I can look past that. Overall, I think the Razorcrest is a great addition to any collector's vintage collection ship collection. How many times can I say collections in one sentence? And a great example of what HasLab can really do. Sure, there are some things that I feel like they could have done better, but they're mostly minor, like the cuts in my hand. And the strengths of this ship vastly outweigh its weaknesses. I love all the little details, the numerous play features, and plus... It just looks really stunning on the shelf. Oh, and one more thing. On December 4th, 2020, not even a month after the Razor Crest's crowdfunding campaign closed, Din Djarin's beloved ship was reduced to scrap in Chapter 14 of The Mandalorian. This led some collectors to wonder if this ship would ever really become iconic enough to warrant the expensive toy that people wouldn't receive for at least another year. Well... In response to that, all I could say is that after I got it put out on my shelf, my four-year-old son, who has never seen a second of footage from the show, saw it sitting up there, gasped, and said, That's the Mandalorian ship! Now, to me, that proves that this ship is already iconic, even though it really doesn't exist anymore in the canon. Again, sorry for the pun. Now, I have zero buyer's remorse and look forward to showing off all of its little hidden secrets to everyone who spots this beautiful conversation starter on the shelf. And now, I'll hand you back to Arnie and Marjorie. Thank you very much for that, Andrew. I always enjoy Andrew's reviews because he's very thorough and detailed in his reviews. And he's just so nice to listen to as well. Very soothing voice. Yes. So in the Star Wars world this week, there was some really big news, I guess, this week, last week, about a certain TV show that's going to be on soon. If you've been following any of it, the trailer dropped for the Kenobi TV series. And with that, there was a chorus of hello there's across Star Wars fans to welcome it. (laughs) I gotta say, ever since Disney bought Lucasfilm, and then when they started talking TV series, and rumors started to swirl that Ewan McGregor could come back for a TV series. And this was long before they announced The Mandalorian. This is singularly the number one thing I have been most excited about since Revenge of the Sith. Honestly, I can't recall being so hyped for anything other than Ewan coming back, donning the robes, being Obi-Wan again. I couldn't wait and when that trailer dropped I was watching it within seconds and and then I saw the trailer and I have to say my hopes dimmed a little bit I mean they started off the trailer Duel of the Fates was playing there had been rumors Darth Maul was going to return in this now I know Darth Maul and Obi-Wan had their duel in Rebels and this would take place somewhere in that same time span of between episodes three and four But when I saw at least this trailer makes it look like the thrust is Obi-Wan on the run from the Inquisitors from Rebels. Why can't it just be Obi-Wan living in the desert of Tatooine in his little adventures? 
I got also really excited to know Hayden Christensen's coming back because that means Darth Vader will be involved in some way. And I kind of thought the plot might be along those lines, but I don't know that I needed the Inquisitors involved. I don't know. Listen, I'll put it out there. I didn't like Rebels. I didn't watch all of Rebels. I watched part of the first season. Not everything has to be for me, and that wasn't. And so I didn't watch it. And now I just kind of feel like you're bringing something lesser into the series I was most anticipating. I know that there is a lot of anger online about the Inquisitors and the shape of that gentleman's head that plays the Inquisitor that was in the trailer. And I really feel bad for that actor that now his big noggin is like everywhere all over the internet and people are like making memes out of it and everything. And (laughs) it's not really fair to him. I'm sorry. I'm on the side of the meme makers. If you have designed an alien species and you've created a character of that alien species I believe you are somewhat required to stick to that general look and not just give Uncle Fester some face makeup. Right. However, that guy's head was like super tall in the cartoon. And so I don't know. I mean, are they going to like bind somebody's head over the course of months and hope that their head makes a conical shape? But we saw the people of Utapau in episode three. That had a much bigger budget, Arnie. This has $25 million an episode. I think that they're probably on par. And I think they could do some makeup to make him look like the rest of his species. But I'm still hopeful. I still think that there's another storyline they're not telling us. Because they dropped the line, Jedi must do good. They have to do that. It's in their nature. What is his mission? What is it that he is out there to do? Will the Inquisitor be a large part of it? You know, the first trailer for Attack of the Clones didn't get me all jazzed either. The second trailer is the one that really made me excited, and I ended up loving that movie. So, I'm keeping positive thoughts, and I will be staying up late on May 24th so I can be one of the first to watch Kenobi. Now, to get you really prepared for the Kenobi TV series, Brock is back with a book review, and he reviewed the Kenobi book. Yeah, this is an older book review Brock did for us back in 2013 when that book was new. But, honestly, that's one of my favorite Star Wars novels of all time. I think John Jackson Miller just had a great way with Star Wars prose. Every one of his books is in top tier for me. And Andrew, in addition to being a product reviewer for us, is a video editor. And so if you're watching the video version of this podcast, he's prettied it up to bring this nearly 10-year-old review back and modernize it. Brock thought it would be a good time to go back and look at this book. So here he is with that review. This is Brock, Star Wars Action News Book Club Liaison, with a spoiler-free-as-possible review of Star Wars Kenobi by John Jackson Miller. Review copy courtesy of Delray Books. Obi-Wan Kenobi is settling into his new home near the Junlin Waste on Tatooine, as he starts his mission to look after the baby Luke Skywalker on the Lars Moisture Farm. He wishes to stay anonymous as possible, even if a new face to a rural small-town community naturally breeds curiosity. He adapts the name Ben and tries only to deal with locals in the nearby town when absolutely necessary. By circumstances out of his control, Ben happens to befriend the town's general store owner, Annaline. 
and he hesitantly agrees to come to her shop for his much-needed supplies instead of going to the more populated and distant town over. But trouble seems to find Ben even when he wants so much to avoid it. The Tuscans in the area have been raiding on local farmers' homesteads, and most of them have abandoned behind a man named Orin Galt, who has set up the Settler's Call in defense of the Tuscan raids, headquartered in Annaline's store. And the Tuscan leader notices that Ben has powers that the other settlers don't seem to have. Will Ben be able to stay out of the fray? Can he turn away from his ingrained Jedi ways and not help those in need? Will the local townspeople ever rid themselves from the omnipresent Tuscan threat? Do the Tuscan raiders have a reason for the more frequent and targeted attacks? The story unfolds in Star Wars Kenobi. In press materials and the acknowledgement at the beginning of this book, they have been very open about this story's origin being Star Wars as a Western, and that is a wise choice, as without that knowledge going in, I could see quite a few readers being disappointed with the deliberate pace of the piece. I saw shades of the classic Westerns Shane and the Searchers throughout the first two parts of this novel, but as we get deeper, it moves into a more of a traditional Western tale territory, with indigenous folk versus the town people, local justice and local corruption, and a stagnant life in the frontier. As many of you know who listen to these reviews, I am a fan of Star Wars books taking on other genres. We have in the recent past had their take on the noir detective story, zombie horror, etc., and with mixed results, the major complaint usually is that while they are doing the genre, they hedge their bets and don't go all in. They lighten up on the sex or the gore because, hey, this is Star Wars. And here, with Star Wars as a Western, this genre story has a lot of the elements correct, but again, it seems to hedge its bets and just doesn't go all the way. For example, the Tuscan Raiders seem to be in a place of where the Native Americans would be in the Star Wars Western. And it's mentioned numerous times that, like Native Americans, the Tuscan Raiders kidnap to replenish their depleting numbers. Yet, we never see that. Many times, they get quite close, and it feels like they're setting us up for a big kidnapping, and it never comes. And at the end of the book, you see why, as the plot point would have seriously taken the book into a darker place than it was already going, and it could derail what was already being set up, which would deny us with the quite satisfying ending the novel actually does provide. If you're familiar with John Jackson Miller's other work, his writing for comics, The Lost Tribe of the Sith short stories, or even his first novel, Star Wars Knight Errant, you know he can do short stories well. He also has a penchant for relatable characters, and all of that is on full display here. Here in Kenobi, he plays to his strengths by dividing the book into four parts. And being so open about the origins of the outline for the story, tell us that these four parts very well could have been four issues of a comic at one point. But for the most part, he's able to mask that likelihood. And I say for the most part because at the start of the third section, the change of atmosphere is so jarring, you get thrown. And I started to wonder, how is it really related to the book I was already invested in? But thankfully, the tangent to Moss Eisley provides the book with the needed turns to end strongly for the character's resolutions. This book reminded me of the Death Star novel from a few years back. That it was a lot about the day in the life of people who inhabit the Star Wars universe, and not about those who shape galactic events like we see in the movies. And like Death Star, Star Wars Kenobi is a character-driven, not plot-driven novel. The third section I mentioned a moment ago has some much-needed plot development that propels the book towards the winning climax, a climax that smartly relies not on more plot, but in the great character work that has been established throughout the book. I enjoyed the way the book starts off with strong connections to the Star Wars movies. 
there is what reads like what would be an opening scrawl, like at the beginning of each Star Wars movie, explaining that Kenobi thinks he killed Anakin on Mustafar, as he doesn't know Anakin's in the suit yet. And the prologue starts right after Kenobi arrives on the planet for the first time, before he drops Luke off at the Lars homestead. So it starts during the events of Revenge of the Sith. And like in a couple of Star Wars movies, and of course many a Western, there's a saloon fight where Obi-Wan ends it definitively with a lightsaber. And this wonderful prologue closes out with Obi-Wan speaking to Qui-Gon in meditation with a profound thought. And I quote, Years ago, we removed one child from Tatooine, thinking him to be the galaxy's greatest hope. Now I have returned one, with the same goal in mind. Nice! Thankfully, the author put all of this at the top of the book to whet our appetite, because we don't see Obi-Wan again for another 50 pages. The background information in this first section is voluminous, but presented very, very well. The greatest compliment I can give this book and its author is that he so expertly and economically introduces this world. And I'm not talking about Tatooine, though he smartly incorporates practically everything we know about Tatooine into the book. From the Two Suns, the Oppressive Heat, Tusken Raiders, Moisture Farms, Landspeeders, Sarlaccs, Jabba the Hutt, Pod Racing, Moss Eisley, Moss Espa, the Jawas and their Sandcrawler. No, the burden here is not necessarily creating a world in a time we are unfamiliar with. We know this setting. But in setting the scene so that we care about what is going on with characters in situations that we don't know anything about. And I instantly felt connected to these townspeople. It felt like I knew people like Annalene and Orin, either from real life or from countless amounts of movies that I've seen. Part of the connection comes from the witty dialogue, others from the sympathy created for these characters as we learn what they have lost living here on this barren, dangerous planet. As a result, by the end of those first 50 or so Ben Kenobi-less pages, the reader is ready to follow these new characters Mr. Miller has created with a concrete hold of the whole situation, who everyone is to each other, which relationships and characters are important, their living environment, and so on. So then he is able to reintroduce Kenobi into this world, and we are then able to empathize with all sides. And none so expertly than with the Tusken Raiders. We have many a chapter throughout the book with the Tuscan clan and their leader, Ayark, which I found excitingly refreshing. So easily could Mr. Miller make them the two-dimensional villainous Indians to the frontiersmen of the Tatooine settlers, but no! He takes the time to thoroughly flesh out their cultures, their beliefs, needs, desires, and it makes for effective storytelling, all the while tying in some popular comic book stories revolving around the Tuscans. Miller does a great job of humanizing Ayark, and Ayark's arc <laughs> becomes one of my favorites in this novel. So while the book is about Obi-Wan's first coming to Tatooine and his efforts to settle into his new life as Ben, it is very much about the settlers Orn and Annaline and their lives, and you quickly realize that they are the two main characters of this book. Miller uses these characters to flesh out and run parallels to Ben's story, to give us a window into the frontier life existence, the harsh realities of living on a desert planet, of loss, and the unforgiving realities of life here. The interactions between Annaline and Orin are so clearly two people who have dealt with each other for years and years, and we get why they make the choices they do, even if you disagree with them. There is a lived-in reality to them that I was able to latch on to right away that propelled me to care about what happens next, even when the book gets talky. The author especially nails these two characters as parents. Their reactions and dialogue towards their kids is so genuine that you can tell the man is a parent himself, which I believe was a comment I made in my review of Star Wars Knight Errant. I felt that the author really got the characterization of Obi-Wan 
and never once did I question his actions as not being true to the character we know so well. Miller nails Obi-Wan's sly humor and manner, and with the help of the reaction and observations of other characters, convey the inner core of sadness this man is feeling at this point in his life. Miller hints about his character's feelings at first, and able to come to these conclusions by putting all the pieces together. Yet, eventually, there are scenes where he blatantly spells out all that subtle work. Perhaps that was intentional, targeted at specific readers, but I was following the subtlety quite well and enjoying the nuances he was displaying in the prose with Ben's demeanor and edge to his dialogue. It has to be said, there is a definite Superman feeling to some key scenes in this novel, where Obi-Wan steps in and saves the day. (laughs) And there is also a few Clark Kent using his powers covertly to assist the helpless scenes, like behind a makeshift smokescreen from a fire extinguisher, and no one's the wiser. Those scenes are quite entertaining to read. I laughed out loud when in one chapter we read about a disturbance inside a building, and directly afterwards, all of a sudden, Kenobi shows up, all Clark Kent saying he was sidetracked by a street vendor, and he seems to have missed some excitement. (laughs) Beyond all the fun to be had there, Mr. Miller is also smart to have some consequences for Ben Kenobi stepping up and using his Jedi abilities. For example, he has a Yark, the main Tusken Raider, noticing Kenobi uses abilities when no one else does. Mr. Miller is able to mine those minor miracles this stranger creates to great effect for character motivation, arcs, and parallels. There's also some great work here tying together established canon of Star Wars, especially in linking and transitioning Obi-Wan Kenobi from the prequels to the Ben Kenobi we meet in A New Hope. Some gaps are nicely filled in as questions that you may not have ever thought of before, like... Why does Ben live so far away from Luke if he's supposed to be watching over him, and why didn't he change his last name if he is on Tatooine hiding from the Empire? And all this results in creating one long timeline between the prequels and the OT that feels like it works. And the author accomplishes a lot of that at the end of the many chapters by having Obi-Wan meditate to Qui-Gon Jinn of his struggles and challenges of his mission and his feelings on the given day. The meditations also allow us to see the real Jedi Obi-Wan Kenobi that we know from the prequels, and not just the secretive Ben he projects towards the other characters. Star Wars Kenobi is a surprisingly refreshing read, a character study of four individuals and how their lives intertwine and feed off each other for better or for worse, with the always timely theme of letting go of your past, of your set ways, and embracing the now for your future. The book reads so well because we get these characters, we understand their points of view, and their hardships, even if we aren't living them ourselves. And while not chock full of what we all consider Star Wars action, there is more than enough Star Wars here for us fans. No one is more surprised than me with how much I enjoyed reading Star Wars Kenobi, and it is a happy recommend. For Star Wars Action News and the Star Wars Action News Book Club, this is Brock. Thank you, Brock, and thank you to all the Star Wars Action News listeners for joining us for this episode. It is always a blast to get back together and talk Star Wars, and honestly, there's so much more we could talk about with collecting, with news from Celebration, with all of the news on the horizon. Damon Lindelof announced writing the new Star Wars film. So much to say, so much collecting to talk about. But we're going to keep it on the back burner until next month. I think that's a great idea. So until next time, may the pegs be stopped. May the force be with you. Thank 
thank you for listening to Star Wars Action News. We hope you've enjoyed the show. You can find pictures of the toys reviewed, chat with other Star Wars collectors, and find hundreds of Star Wars Action News episodes at our website, SWActionNews.com. This podcast is created by Star Wars fans showing their love of Star Wars. You can also find Star Wars Action News on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. The links to our social media sites are at SWActionNews.com. You can also help out our show by telling your friends to listen by posting on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or in person. We would also greatly appreciate a five-star review written on iTunes. A link to our iTunes feed is at SWActionNews.com. You can also send us your latest store reports, figure reviews, and more. Email us an MP3 or iPhone voice memo at show at SWActionNews.com. All content received is subject for use on the show. Star Wars Action News is not affiliated with Lucasfilm Limited. Star Wars and all of the Star Wars universe contains is trademark and copyright Lucasfilm Limited, a subsidiary of the Walt Disney Company. All rights reserved. Star Wars Action News is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2022. All rights reserved, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. Star Wars Action News. Now this is podcasting. The cockpit seats four and is nicely painted. That is wrong. The cockpit seats three and is nicely painted. Thank you very much for that, Andrew. I always enjoy Andrew's reviews because he's very thorough and detailed in his reviews. And he's just so nice to listen to as well. Very soothing voice. Yes. He should read stories like on a column or something. Or if Delilah ever retires and they need a new DJ for romance radio, Andrew could slip right in. Oh my God, she's still going. She was like, not to date myself, but before I could drive. God, that woman's got to be like 90 now, right? (laughs) Jesus. Delilah. Oh, that's funny. I can't believe I pulled that name out. I know. (laughs)